Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Hey, welcome to the show. This is Jeremy. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Luke Galen. Hello. And Fletch. Hey. I guess we should say this is not going to air until uh, a few days later, but um, we are recording bright and early on Easter Sunday morning. That's right. Dave has risen. He has risen indeed. Got up early this morning, rolled the rock away, and uh, set to work. Awesome, awesome. Are you guys doing anything sacrilegious to celebrate the holiday today? Uh, I bought some chocolate crosses, actually, Sweet. that I w- that I will eat. Uh, those are sacrilegious. I thought we were going to do a pagan rite of spring. We could dance around and frolic. And with... I'm all for that. Celebrate I think fertility? That sort of thing. I think that's what I'm going to do when I get that's home. That's what the Easter holiday is about anyway. That's right. It's all fertility these days. I got to see a uh, burlesque show last night that was devoted to biblical themes. They called it uh, The Last Temptation of Happy Pants. And uh, it was it was awesome, awesome sacrilegious fun. No promises, but we're going to see if we can get them to share clips with us for a, an upcoming episode because what is better than doing the most over-the-top blasphemous comedy in a highly religious conservative era on the eve of the most holy of Christian holidays. I was very, very impressed with uh, how they handled it. Mm-hmm. Can we call the episode La Sacre du Printemps, or as the French say, the right of, that's the right of spring in, in, in French. So. <laughs> wow. Sacramento. You, wow, you are waxing eloquent today. Um, you are full of French today. That's weird. Well, I got some cool news this week. Ooh. Yours truly is going to be um, one of just a few people at the private dinner with Christopher Hitchens. Wow. Uh, yeah, when he's coming to town uh, to Grand Rapids in April for the Hitchens versus Hitchens debate. Well, la-di-da. So, yeah, yeah. I uh, kind of thought I might just try to stick that to you, Dave. <laughs> yeah, Thanks. For your earlier comments regarding... Uh, Regarding your dinner with uh, Richard Dawkins, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. So well, but uh, I've um, got tickets for the debate, so I'll, yeah. I'll get to see that. I won't get to you know drink with him or anything. Yeah, if you haven't heard about this, our little town of Grand Rapids, Michigan, is very fortunate uh, in that we are getting to host the first public debate between Christopher Hitchens and Peter Hitchens, brothers. Uh, the first public debate they've done since they've become reconciled. Huh. I expect our listeners to know who Christopher Hitchens is. Peter Hitchens is also a very uh, popular writer in Great Britain, and he's pretty much the opposite of his brother on everything. <laughs> he's he's very conservative socially, and he's religious, and the two have been estranged for years but they've recently been reconciled enough to, to be talking again. And I argue with my brother all the time because he's conservative and nobody pays us a cent. <laughs> we even well, have like tumblers of brandy as well. It's the same thing. I'm not even excited about having dinner with you. So, uh, <laughs> this is the injustice of the world. But yeah, that's coming right here. And the, the um, uh, what, what are we now? What, what is our official slogan? Are we the doubtcasters or the apostles of doubt or what? What do we f- refer to ourselves yeah. as? Because our emailers call us, you know, both. All the unholy trinity, reasonable doubters. Yeah, um, I don't know. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll have to we'll have to finalize something. But yeah, we're all going to be present. I get to go to the dinner the night before uh, or up. the night of. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it in. Is uh, Peter yeah. going to be there too? Yeah, Peter's going to be there too. Really? Oh man. So here's the thing: you guys got to help me out, and our listeners do too. Since I'm going to get to meet him and, and probably will only have a short time to say something, I don't want to be the typical secular fanboy and be like, oh, God, I really – I love your book and that part that you said this is – that was great. You know, I want to give him something better quality than that. That's how we roll here at Reasonable Doubts. Mm. I was thinking some dirty limericks. Uh, there once was a man from Nantucket. Right. That's a classic. 
Once, um, once was a man I, from Kent is my favorite. Yeah. I think you could <laughs> regale him with the uh, wiener poopy story that we covered uh, a few week episodes back. I don't know. That's really going out on a limb. Can you make one up? There once was a man from Grand Rapids. Um, yeah, maybe I'll just have to write my own. But uh, Rapids. Once was a man from Kentwood. Oh, hey, that's uh, it'll easy be difficult. One. It'll be difficult, but we'll see if we can do it. But but yeah, if any listeners have some dirty limericks, because I hear that he's quite fond of them. Uh, send them off. I want to see our inbox full of Edison. just vulgar, vulgar literary. Uh, <laughs> Luke's still searching, searching his mind for something. So I'm excited about that. And also, again, no promises, but it's looking good at this point. I think Reasonable Doubts podcast, though we're not able to get an interview with Christopher Hitchens. Of course. That was not possible Ugh. simply because of uh, time restraints and other things. They are flying in right before the dinner, mm. and then they're leaving immediately after. Um, and C-SPAN and everything else is going to be there. So, really? So they don't have time for that kind of thing. How about next week I just bring out a pint of brandy and you know, we'll <laughs> yeah, We pretend. You don't yeah. know what you're talking we about. Could. We could do an act. We are working right now with all the groups that are funding this to get rights to air portions of that debate on our podcast. So, wow! So we might be able to bring our listeners a debate with Christopher Hitchens. So I'm excited about that. But before we move on, we have another special to announce to our listeners. You may right now, if you log on to Facebook... If you have a Facebook account and find the Reasonable Doubts podcast group, on that website there's going to be a link to a special bonus episode. We're calling it the Spring Break episode. The nerdy Spring Break. Girls Gone Mild. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about existentialism. <laughs> Woo! Luke, words, quit showing me your boobs. Luke, uh, Luke doesn't like that title. I know, it's kind of lame. But the uh, the idea was it's going to contain some material that we could not release on the normal podcast and still keep our nice clean rating that we have on on iTunes. So we didn't want to jeopardize that, but we're going to include a gag reel, um, outtakes, unedited outtakes from the show so far. If you enjoyed the episode last week uh, when we responded to William Lane Craig's arguments, we have some additional arguments that he uh, uses that we continue to debunk and also a movie review of the best or worst, depending on how you look at it, mm-hmm. anti-Christian films of the year. And so um, it should be very entertaining. And we want to offer that as an exclusive to members of our Facebook group or also our MySpace page, which is www.myspace.com. Slashed outcast. So we got some news also. We're going to start off with a follow-up on our earlier story we did about the Dalai Lama. Uh, if you remember earlier on the show, we were talking about how the Dalai Lama is discussing that perhaps he will not be incarnate, reincarnating this time around. And we mentioned um, among several different spiritual interpretations that people were making of that statement the political rationale behind it seemed to be to thwart efforts of the Chinese government to appoint their own Dalai Lama and to meddle with that process in order to stamp out Tibetan nationalist movements. Well, we see things heating up again in this area over Tibetan independence. Here's a story from CNN.com. China is ready to talk to the Dalai Lama. The story begins... Chinese Premier Wen Jiabo has pledged he is ready to talk to the Dalai Lama if the Tibetan spiritual leader renounces violence and demands for Tibetan independence, says the UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown. Now, that's kind of interesting. If the Dalai Lama renounces violence, yes, there is violence going on in Tibet, started by protests that were commemorating the day that the Tibetan government and the Dalai Lama went into exile, Hmm. the day that Tibet became an occupied territory of China. Now, what's interesting about these protests is that allegedly many of the monks that were involved in these violent protests uh, participated in the violence, um, might have even tried to stir up some of the violence themselves. 
But of course, it's very difficult to find out what actually went on because a lot of the information that we're getting is from Chinese state-supported news agencies. And of course, um, they are not a beacon of objectivity themselves. Quite the contrary. And there's disagreements as to just exactly how widespread the violence is. So, for example, uh, the CNN article we quoted says that a number of people have been killed uh, in these clashes. The Tibetan government claims that 80 people were killed by uh, Lhasa police, but local authorities from, from China say that only 13 people died in the protests. Well, 80 or 13? Yeah, there's, this is for one day of the protests, the, the main day that this broke out. It's a pretty big discrepancy there. Yeah, so who do you trust, right? Right. I would say on this on this point, I would be more suspicious of the Chinese government given their history. But, you know, it's not entirely improbable that uh, perhaps there was some violence on the part of Buddhist monks as well. We do know that the Dalai Lama himself has spoken out against these tactics an article from the UK Times online, radicals left frustrated by Lama's tactics. Quote, the Dalai Lama was criticized yesterday by prominent Tibetan radicals who say that his nonviolent campaign for greater autonomy within China has failed and who are demanding a boycott of the Beijing Olympics. So there's actually, this is tied into the Olympics. Hmm. The article goes on to talk about Tibetan youths and particular organizations like the Tibetan Youth Congress who feel that the nonviolent strategies that are advocated by the Dalai Lama are not working, they haven't worked in how many years, and that violent means may be necessary. I don't think nonviolence ever solved anything. Oh, wait, hang on. No, that's, <laughs> that's not true. One of these members who actually took part in a guerrilla campaign uh, violently attacking China in the 1960s, says nobody takes the middle way seriously anymore. This is not nonviolence. It is appeasement. And of course, the Dalai Lama himself is not asking for autonomy anymore. He just wants to preserve the culture of Tibet. But yes, the whole tie into the Olympics, they see this anniversary of the um, occupation of Tibet as, as, a, as a strategic point in drawing attention to the abuses of human rights that are going on there because the Olympics are coming to China. And so the world is going to have their eyes focused on this region. And so they view this as the time that it would be most expedient for them to stir things up. Violence grabs the eyeballs. The situation in Tibet has been breaking news for the last few days because of violence. The international community and the media are paying us attention only because of the violence. That is a quote, by the way, from a BBC News article, Exiles Question Dalai Lama's Nonviolence. That goes to show that are, there are many in that camp who view that the, the violence is actually a tool on their side to get their point across. That sounds kind of uh, un-Buddhist-like to me. Am, am I mistaken? Well, I guess that's the question, isn't it? Is to uh, our, our perception in the West of Buddhism, a lot of secularists especially, we tend to soften our criticism when we get to some of the Eastern religions and Buddhism in particular, just because it does seem to be such a pacifistic religion. It does seem to emphasize nonviolence. But I think we can be naive sometimes and not recognize that Buddhism has not always been a tradition that gets a moral pass on issues of religious violence. There's a great commentary in this month's Free Inquiry magazine, Buddhism, Blood, and Enlightenment by Joseph Grasso, and he documents several parts of Buddhist history that kind of tell a different story. Right now in Sri Lanka, pro-war clerics, Buddhist monks who are basically fueling a lot of the violence there and also mentions how these Buddhist monks in Sri Lanka have their own political party, the National Heritage Party. It holds nine seats in the parliament. And um, this party has been really pushing for a crackdown, a military offensive against some of the separatist groups. So they are clearly pushing violence as a means to resolving certain political conflicts they're having. He mentions a New York Times article uh, in February 25th, 2007, quote, that reports that monks have gone so far as to brawl with anti-war protesters 
and publicly torch uh, Norway's flag, Norway's flag, because they were trying to step in and broker peace talks. But it sounds to me that that the violence that's going on here does not stem from tenets of Buddhism. And I'm saying I don't know. Um, Right. uh, Not that I don't think so. I'm saying I don't know. It sounds to me that this is a political Right. Rather than a religious <clears throat> well, I, movement. I, I don't think you can deny, of course, that, yeah, this is very clearly relating to politics, especially especially in the Tibetan case. Right. And I'm sure no doubt in the Sri Lankan case. I just don't know as much about that. But he does comment on this. Taking from the article from Free Inquiry again, it was the most admired Buddhist ideas such as selflessness and the elimination of the ego that morphed into militancy for the cause of aggression and submission to the unity of state in the person of the emperor. And here he is is referring to Japan during World War II. Uh, He mentions, through such scholarly support as well as being served as military chaplains, missionaries, and indoctrination trainers for soldiers and industrial workers, Buddhist leaders contributed towards Japan's war effort. Anybody who is familiar with Buddhism knows that those ideas are very, very flexible in how they get their interpretation. Sure. And there are definitely doctrines in Buddhism that could be twisted to support a much more militant view. So I think uh, it it would be interesting sometime in the future, maybe this summer, to do a two-part special uh, like we did on Islam. Maybe not two parts, but uh, to do a special like we did on Islam, focusing on Buddhism and looking at certain issues there and perhaps uh, bringing up some things that are less known about Buddhism, good and bad, I think. Moving on, we're very happy uh, to bring to you on the show a special interview with Susan Jacoby. We've mentioned Susan Jacoby several times on the show before. She has written the book Free Thinkers. Go out and buy it. It's wonderful. It's awesome. It's a great history of secularism in America. She's a fantastic author. She's been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize in the past. Mm -hmm. And she has just released a new book, The Age of American Unreason. That sounds like uppity elitism to me. (laughs) So here's our interview with Susan Jacoby. Listen up, folks. This is important. (laughs) Oh, boy. You just said folks. I know. She does not like the word folks. She single-handedly ruins the word folks. I know. Me. Now I catch myself saying folks all the time. I do, too. In, we hereby highly class. resolve that these folks have not died in vain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we the folks in order to establish a more perfect union. Thank you so much, Susan Jacoby, for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Happy to be here. In your latest book, The Age of American Unreason, you write, the most ominous and obvious manifestation of this ignorance, the ignorance that American society has seemed to have fallen into, is an absence of curiosity about other points of view. Uh, Yes. My book sort of picks up where Richard Hofstadter's anti-intellectualism in American life left off in the early 1960s. And that was, of course, before our 24-7 media infotainment culture. And by an absence of curiosity about other points of view, I think has become much more pronounced during the last 40 years. And in an odd way, the enormous choice provided by the media environment reinforces and encourages this. Think about it. People who watch Fox News are people who already believe in the conservative version of news Mm -hmm. uh, and the conservative analysis of society. People who watch Lou Dobbs on CNN are people who are anti-immigration and they want to hear more of it. People who watch MSNBC now are going to be people who are politically liberal. They just fired their last conservative commentator, Tucker Carlson. And so one of the things that I've found in lecturing around the country, both for the age of American unreason and earlier for free thinkers, a history of American secularism, I welcomed the opportunity to lecture. And I thought it would be an opportunity to educate people who had been badly taught in, right. in schools about the secular side of American history. 
Instead, what I found was is that my audiences were composed 98% of people who already agree with me. And serious conservatives report exactly the same experience on the lecture circuit. Now, this was not always so in American society. In the last quarter of the 19th century, which was sort of the golden age of the lecture as public entertainment, people went to hear Robert Ingersoll, who was known as the great agnostic, by the tens of thousands in large cities. Now, they cannot all have been people who were opposed to religion or people who thought the theory of evolution was just fine and dandy. <laughs> but they wanted to hear what he had to say from the horse's mouth. They wanted to see if the devil really had horns. And you lose a lot in a society when people lose that kind of intellectual curiosity and only want to have what they already think reinforced. So it's almost as if we have it set up where you can have parallel universes, a conservative and a liberal universe with all the information that you you get. You can self-select what viewpoints you want to hear. Yes, and a, and a lot of people do. I mean, in a way, while I hold no brief for network evening newscasts as being paragons of knowledge, <laughs> uh, they do make an effort to present differing points of view. And uh, that's one of the reasons they're losing viewers, is people prefer to hear the views on television just as they prefer to read those who still read. They prefer to hear what they already believe to be true. Now, you mentioned Robert Ingersoll. And in your book, uh, when talking about Robert Ingersoll, you talk about the golden age of free thought in America. As you just mentioned, presumably not all the people who are listening to them were atheists and agnostics. But the golden age was not that free thinkers were in any way a majority in America, but, but only that their viewpoints were actually heard by the public. Right, and, 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 by, a, and by a lot of people, too. How do you think we can return back to that golden age? How can we bring various uh, conflicting viewpoints together to hear differing points of view? Uh, I don't know. And I, one, of the, one of the major themes in the age of American unreason is that, uh, is that we are moving farther and farther away from that kind of open society in which free inquiry was emphasized. Uh, I think it's very difficult. Uh, and also there's something in talking about the media that I emphasize heavily in this book, which is we also live in an age in which the video culture has triumphed over the print mm -hmm. culture. And in a way, speaking, speaking uh, of course, was not part of print culture strictly. And yet it was because speaking discursively and at length is the antithesis of the sound bites and the oversimplifications that we hear on TV every day. So that the culture of the discursive lecture, let's say, and the culture of written correspondence uh, is to the uh, and the culture of print were all part of the same thing. Here's the internet, which is a wonderful tool and. Uh, and seemingly could be a way for people to expand their knowledge and hear different points of view if they wanted to. It's the <laughs> if they wanted to that's part of that. Uh, I've often been accused of being a technophobe and a Luddite because I don't think the internet is God. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in a way, part of our intellectual problem in America in particular, because we're always in love with technology, every new technology, we're the first adapters of it uh, in the world, is that we think of the internet as being more than a tool, mm -hmm. which I don't think it is. It can be a great tool. But it's only as good as what people are looking for. It amazes me that people talk about, quote, the Internet as though it were this automatic source of knowledge. I mean, garbage in, garbage out applies to the Internet as much as anything else. And the Internet, I do believe, has also encouraged this segmentation that we see in viewership on, on television mm -hmm. as well. People go to the blogs that they agree with. Right. Or occasionally, as I've seen, I write for a Washington Post Newsweek blog on faith. 
Sometimes they go to blogs they disagree with to be made very angry. Mm-hmm. But I see very little evidence that people go most people go to blogs with an open mind. What what the blog is about is about something else which is a very low level of culture in our society. It's every idiot expressing himself with no editing and by editing I don't mean an editor sitting at the top. Right. I mean no self-editing. Right. Meaning think about what you're saying. I often ask people on my blog at the Washington Post uh, who express strong anti-Semitism, strong anti-Islamic feelings, strong anti-atheist feelings. Hmm. I, I, I say, would you – they're able to do this because they're anonymous. Would you like your friends or your lover right. or, your, or your husband or your wife or your parents or your boss to, to know that you think these things? Uh, there, there's part of our, our intellectual dumbing down has been that, that people talk about this as free speech – Free speech implies taking responsibility for your speech. One of the things the internet does is it enables people to say the most ghastly things, the right. most stupid things, With no and, not ta- and not take any responsibility for it at all. Well, it's very discouraging because I was going to, <laughs> I was going to try to say that I've found in some ways blogs to be an antidote to at least one half of that problem, being that you can get more in depth in an issue. I read a lot of science bloggers. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to it's nice to be able to go to a source where you can get more in depth on an issue than you will get in the science coverage in the major media. But of course, we run into that problem. Sure, sure, and 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 use rightly. The internet is the greatest of tools. Hyperlinks can take you to original text that you never find even in a long magazine or newspaper article. But the question is really how much most people use it. Uh, I wrote a couple of weeks ago to introduce my new book. I wrote an article about defining dumbness downward, uh, which is, of course, a play on the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan's defining deviancy downward. I wrote a piece for the Washington Post. And I got uh, there was just a he was the most emailed article of the week. It was a huge response. But a lot of the emails I got, a lot of them would have the subject line, you're an idiot. I op- I looked at a lot of the emails that had a subject, the, the, you're, an, the you're an idiot subject line. That's sophisticated uh, yes, off that, the bat. Yes, that's sophisticated. But, you know, talking about how this relates to our political culture, one guy said, you know, you're an idiot. He started out, you're an idiot. Uh, first of all, 80% of people have never had any knowledge, and that's just the way it is. Uh, and he said, I don't care. I had mentioned a National Geographic poll that showed that uh, two-thirds of Americans uh, under 25 can't find a rock on a map. And he said, I don't care if my car mechanic can find a rock on a map. I only know that he knows how to fix my car. Well, first of all, talk about an elitist viewpoint. Right. Not to care if somebody you think is below you in class and educational level they ought to care right. whether they can find them on a map because they're voters. They help elect our presidents. Somebody who can't find a rock on a map maybe is a lot more likely to vote for an idiotic president. Hmm. Uh, in fact, I think we have evidence that they are more likely to. So the idea, the idea that, that, for instance, that you have to be an intellectual or a college graduate to, let's say, uh, two-thirds of Americans can't identify DNA as the key to heredity. Mm-hmm. I don't see any reason why the average high school graduate right. shouldn't be expected to know that. And a society in which somebody has to be an intellectual or college graduate to know this is a society in real trouble. Several factors are going in to, to make this this problem for Americans. You say anti-intellectualism, anti-rationalism, and the popular equation of intellectualism with liberalism. First of all, you make a distinction between anti-intellectualism and anti-rationalism. And you say today maybe there shouldn't be a distinction. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, well, Richard Hofstadter was careful to make a distinction between anti-intellectualism and anti-rationalism. His classic work on anti-intellectualism published in 1963. I mean, he made the point out that there are lots of anti-rational intellectuals, and who could dispute that? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Some of them them are, uh, you know, the architects of the Iraq War. Right. Uh, But anyway, I think that the coming that not today anti-rationalism and anti-intellectualism whether it's called anti-intellectualism or not have become more and more synonymous and what's the chief characteristic of anti-rationalism it's imperviousness to evidence right. no amount of evidence can change their minds about anything 
And this, you know, it's something that runs through our culture. Uh, a fundamentalist religion is fundamentally anti-rational. And by that, I don't mean religion altogether. Right. I mean fundamentalism. You can, given the flexibility of the human brain, you can believe in a kind of liberal, moderate religion mm -hmm. and also accept the theory of evolution. Uh, but you cannot believe that the earth was literally created in six days and not be completely in a completely anti-rational relationship mm -hmm. to modern science. Uh, bringing it back to free thinkers, uh, because my, my concern too is um, we don't just like to preach to the choir here at Reasonable Doubts either. We like to challenge our own. Should free thinkers be concerned that they might also be caught in this echo chamber, that they might be subject to groupthink? Are there ways that we only listen to our own sources on different matters and perhaps not honestly reach out to understand other viewpoints? I, I ask this uh, because when reading about the golden age of American free thought, you made a very careful point to say that uh, free thinkers were not politically unified. They were mm -hmm. across the board. And although that's technically true today, we would say that many free thinkers tend towards a more liberal viewpoint. I think I think because since free thinkers are part of American culture, I think that the I think that the tendency to be cut off from at least understanding your enemy right. uh, is is strong among free thinkers too. And I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a good example of this. Uh, many free thinkers I know. Uh, tend to blame everything that's wrong, for instance, with our attitude towards science on religious fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. But if you look actually at the statistics about how many Americans are fundamentalists, you find that that can't be true. A third of Americans believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible or say they do. Mm -hmm. This is a large minority. It's a bigger minority than is in any developed country but it's still a minority. However, two-thirds of Americans say that they don't believe in any form of evolution. Now, you've got the one-third who believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. <laughs> you understand why they don't accept evolution. Right. But here we have two-thirds who say they don't accept evolution. So something else Right. Other than religion is at work there. And that's something else is our really crummy educational system. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no other explanation for it. And also general, general ignorance of the two-thirds of Americans also believe that both creationism and evolution should be taught in public schools. Well, these are people who haven't been taught to think logically. And my guess is they don't understand what either creationism or evolution right. means. You know, since, Let since, alone philosophy since, uh, of science. Uh, right. Since a Gallup poll quoted by Stephen Prothero, who's a professor of religious history, shows that more than half of Americans can't identify Genesis as the first book of the Bible. <laughs> this in the most so-called religious nation in the developed world. Well, if they can't identify Genesis as the first book of the Bible, they probably haven't read it. I think that's a right. So maybe they don't even know what the creation story says. If they, maybe if they knew what it said, they wouldn't believe it. Back to your book, Free Thinkers. During this golden age of American free thought, what were the issues that diverse groups of free thinkers, politically diverse, what were the issues that they would rally behind? What were the issues that they agreed on? And they were diverse. Some of them were very conservative economically. Uh, free thinkers in terms of religion included people like Andrew Carnegie and Thomas mm -hmm. Edison. Uh, and they were a lot of them were social Darwinists, which was a big a big mistake right. and an example of the way in which free thought can go can go off the rails. They did what Darwin never did. They took his theory of competition in nature, survival of the fittest, and said, "Well, if you're rich in society, that must mean you're the fittest," uh, which is something that Darwin, in fact, explicitly repudiated. In general, what what the late nineteenth century free thinkers agreed on. And I'm now thinking of Ingersoll as, in a way, the representative free thinker mm -hmm. of the age. Uh, one, they 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 agreed on the importance of contemporary science as a way of looking at the world. Uh, they agreed on the separation of church and state. They all agreed on that, mm -hmm. including those who had very different economic views. Right. They agreed on the separation of the church of church and state. They agreed on the importance of public education and raising public educational standards. 
most, though not all by any means of them, uh, believed in the equality of women and that, and that women were the intellectual and could be the intellectual equals of men. This was one of Ingersoll's big themes, and he spoke mm-hmm. about it all the time. Uh, they, Ingersoll, in fact, spoke about the importance of birth control and liberating women before there was any <laughs> form of, of reliable birth control. Now, where the free thinkers who were social Darwinists really went off the rails and, and by the way, continued to go off the rails in the 20th century mm-hmm. was on the subject of race. One of the reasons that Robert Ingersoll is one of my heroes is he was one of a minority of free thinkers who saw the condition of former slaves for what it was, a reflection of Jim Crow mm-hmm. and economic discrimination, and but a lot of free thinkers who believed in the social Darwinist theory believed the ridiculous idea that, uh, that, the reason, that the reason people of color or the colored, which was then the respectable term for mm-hmm. blacks, uh, that they were as they were because that's, that's what they were fitted by nature to be. Now, it's very interesting. It's a blot on the history of free thought. Right. It's which, a by the way, I did, Which, by the way, I didn't – yeah, because, because we're, in what I call junk thought in the age of American unreason, I talk about this idea being resurrected today in terms of boys and girls learning totally different ways. <laughs> One thing you can be certain of, every bad idea in history – always reappears in another guise eventually. Right. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing, we're seeing that bad idea about women reappearing and, and, and also bad ideas about race and IQ and mm-hmm. so on reappearing. And that, in that respect, freethinkers' views on race and the extension of natural selection into the world of society was, was, a, was a big mistake that they made. And I think, again, we are seeing some of this not, not among freethinkers specifically, but among the proponents of what I call junk thought and on both the left and the right, mm-hmm. claiming that boys and girls are so different that they have to be dedicated, educated in different ways, and ignoring the whole history of junk science and junk thought, which always makes these claims. Right. We've heard it all before. From Athens, where only men were fitted by nature to discuss philosophy, from the idea that slaves could not learn to read, although you had to have laws to prohibit it just in case, from the idea that women were constitutionally, biologically unfit for higher education. This new boy brain, girl brain thing, this junk thought that I talk about in the age of American unreason, it's just another incarnation of this stupid idea. Mm-hmm. But the, the reason I say that things are worse today than they were in the past is that the differential between these junky ideas and the real state of modern knowledge is much greater, even if hmm. you talk about it in a religious sense. Uh, orthodox preachers in the 19th century who preached that sickness was God's punishment for sin and we mustn't interfere with God's plan with medicine, they couldn't do so much harm because medicine really had almost nothing to offer people <laughs> until the end of the 19th century. But now, now people who for instance, are anti-science and who think that science is a is a government plot or or that that science is is a is a paternalistic plot on on the left, some of the left feminists. Now they can do a lot of damage because medical science has a lot to offer people now. And what we really ought to be talking about are the ethical issues surrounding it and not not trashing science. Right. right. So tying it all together, American free thinkers today. What can we learn from people like Ingersoll? What can we learn from them in combating unreason in our own society, in our own age? Well, one of the things I think that we can learn from them is something that probably not every freethinker understood then because one of the one of the chief characteristics of 18th and 19th century freethinkers was they believed in progress. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big difference between free thought today. We've seen too much right. to be believers in, in the inevitability of progress. I think, you know, if you had asked Robert Ingersoll whether evolution would still be controversial at the beginning of the 20th century, he would have laughed at you because these people believed in progress. But one thing I think we can learn from them is that it's always a battle. An ideology that values reason and thought and 
free inquiry and thinking for yourself is never going to be the automatically accepted majority ethos. And I think that the fact that this is a battle is something we need to learn. And more, particularly from people like Thomas Paine and Robert Ingersoll, that it is a battle that has to be carried beyond your natural audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is how. But the fact is, is that, is that the, the ideas expressed in Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason at the end of the 18th century, many of them are still controversial. Paine, one of the reasons Paine was so hated was he did reach an audience beyond the audience mm-hmm. of people who agreed with him. And I, I do think that we, we have to be aware of, of this. And also, there is something I think that Paine and Ingersoll did much better than some free thinkers and or atheists today. Uh, you don't get anywhere with other people who don't fully share your views but might be sympathetic to some of mm-hmm. them by just contemptuously saying you're idiots. Right. I think, I think, for instance, this is one of my objections to Richard Dawkins' mm-hmm. books. Uh, not, not that I, I just think it's great, it's great for him, but tactically you don't get anywhere with anyone by, right. call, by calling them a fool. And I think in the practical world in which you think of the culture in which we live, in which our educational system is narrow, we have to form alliances. And there are lots of people, uh, even intellectuals, I would say the center right. And I think a lot of free thinkers politically could be described as center left Mm -hmm. because generally people who are (laughs) way off in the radical left have their own ideology and don't – free thinkers tend to be more members of the center left, I think, than than the radical left because so often the radical left is very anti-rational, caught up in things like the boy brain, girl brain thing or repressed memory is another example of, mm-hmm. of, of radical left stupidity. Free thinkers tend not to belong there. And there have to be some alliances on things like what should be taught about science in schools between, between free thinkers who are, say, to the left of center and, and some people who are to the right of center who might not describe themselves as free thinkers. If we don't make alliances with those people, we are not going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. We are not a majority, uh, which is – this is no surprise. <laughs> well, and that, that is very much like how you explain some of their strategies working. Broad social issues regarding mm-hmm. education and rights and freedoms uh, um, that, that you don't have to be a religious skeptic necessarily to get behind, but right. which advance reason and advance – well, I think also, in fact, one of the things that most depresses me about the current political campaign is we have not had much talk of civil liberties. I think because all of all of the candidates, the Democrats in particular, are very afraid of being accused of being, quote, soft on our enemies. But there are actually – there are civil liberties issues which uh, – which free thinkers can agree with on the number of other people. And I think that's another another important area. But uh, disregard of civil liberties is also another example of our general level of cultural ignorance. To return to the age right. of American unreason, right. uh, because uh, if you don't know what the Constitution actually says, if you don't know if unlike the majority of Americans can only name one right in the First Amendment, freedom of religion, they can't name any of the other rights in the First Amendment. If people don't know this, if there's such a dearth of knowledge provided by our educational system, then we can't even have a discussion right. about these issues. And patriotism becomes equivalent with believing in what the president says or well, the look party at, line. Well, look at the large number of people who believe that the Constitution established a Christian nation. About mm-hmm. a quarter of people actually believe that. You couldn't do that with any sort of knowledge of the actual founding no. fathers. And what no, they, no they, they, you can't do it having read the Constitution. <laughs> it specifically does not establish a Christian nation. Well, Susan Jacoby, thank you so much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts, and we uh, wish you all the luck getting out your message about the age of American unreason. Thank you. The headline is Religion Linked to Happy Life. A belief in God could lead to a more contented life, research says. This was a study that um, was covered in the BBC. That So they uh, have studies that were d- done by various institutions showing that religiosity is associated with higher life satisfaction, 
amongst believers, I suppose, uh, relative to non-believers. Mm-hmm. This is actually nothing new. I mean, there's been various, a uh, lot of studies that have been done over the years showing that, uh, you know, on average, well, they, they typically study either the religiousness of the person themselves and then correlate it with their mental health, or they study things like using religious means to cope with problems, so like re- religious coping, prayer, consulting your minister, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they overall, a lot of these studies contradict each other because they use different definitions of religiosity from just church going yes, no, to how intensely a believer are you. And so you can find different things on the basis of that. But they tend to find on average there's like an effect for religiosity, a mild effect to be happier relative to people that are lower on religiosity. And I think that's the crucial distinction. Many of these studies don't include non-religious people. In a related study, a team of researchers in Helsinki found that ignorance is bliss. I I don't know if you read that one. I I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said the fact that religious man might be happier than a non-religious man is, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, is no more to the point than a drunk man is happier than a sober one. I, I, I believe that is Shaw. That's, um, I don't know if either of you guys heard the last episode of Radio Lab. Yes, one I of did. my new favorite my f- podcast. Is that the one on deception? Or? Yeah, the one on deception. That's a very good one, yeah. They found that people who were depressed were more honest with themselves. Mm-hmm. This is um, the depressive realism hypothesis. Yeah. They were this trying to see. Yeah. That people that you can measure somebody's sense of, and we're not talking like delusional here, but just a mild amount of self deception, the little lies we tell us every day, like, I don't have, I've never thought about killing somebody, or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. one of the questions is, I sometimes enjoy my bowel movements. You know, these are things that. <laughs> who doesn't? Who does? Yeah, that was like, oh, man. So actually, that's in most people that most it's a function of, time, of education, okay. I think. And if somebody's psychologically minded and educated, they say, well, yes, I'm, I, it's embarrassing, but I do those things. But there's many people that don't. They don't even admit it to themselves, much mm-hmm. less other people, and that they found that self-deception in mild amounts is correlated with happiness. And yeah. these people actually do better. They had the swimming study, wasn't it? That the swimmers actually right. swam better when they deceived themselves. They found a lot of athletes and other people who are very successful are are pretty good at lying to themselves. So I think that that in psychology, this was a big. This has been a big debate over the past couple of decades about depressive realism. Again, we're not talking about like severe depression. That's right. obviously a distortion of reality. Where you know mm-hmm. I'm not worth anything. But people that are mildly self-distorting with their views, like eh, people like me, you know, or uh, I. I come off as better than most people. Those things that are not entirely true actually lead us to perhaps behave in a more functional way that we don't notice our embarrassments. We don't obsess and navel gaze as much. And that leads to more happiness probably. Hmm. So my question for the researcher here um, is could you – could somebody adapt that experiment and apply it to religious belief? Would religious believers show a higher level of – that one of the debates in the in the religiosity field is whether it, that relationship that we talked about before where people that are more religious tend to be more happy is actually due to their self-deception presentation things. And there's a debate on either side on that. Oh, okay. Uh, so be- there is data, but it's not conclusive. Right. And they have the various <laughs> scales like the self-deception thing where you measure people, uh, the tendency to talk better about yourself and that sort of thing. And there's a debate as to whether religious people self-deceive more or they're actually genuinely higher in those things. You remember when David Myers came and gave a talk? Yeah. Uh, there's a psychology professor at Hope College who studies things like life happy, happiness, satisfaction. He gave a talk to our group uh, when it was the Free Thought Association on the benefits of religiosity with mental health. And he put up all these diagrams at one end was like religiosity, and then it was filtered through all these other things like physical health, right. you know, exercise, low alcohol, low drug use, and then existential things like you know, a life purpose, satisfaction, and there was social support from the church. And at the other end of the diagram, it had mental health or physical health. And so he said, you know, that the reason religiosity leads to better uh, mental health and happiness is because of all these mediating factors. And the very first question that he got was something like, yes, that's the way it is in most cases, but does it have to be religion? In other words, can you have another thing that leads to those same mediating factors, even a group like this one, where there's social support, peers that you that support you and whatever that can still lead to happiness and he's he kind of backed off and oh said, yeah well, i remember that well i'm just describing the way things are for most people in a church-going country that religion functions as that i but, remember people pressed him also <clears throat> did you factor in did you actually you look at this data for people who you know get out of the house and and are part of a organization right. and everything else and he said no right i think that the, the one of the flaws in the, and i've heard for, uh, anecdotally from other 
places that he's given talks like that or other forums that he's presenting his data that that's also a frequently asked question. Psychologists tend to be a rather cranky, skeptical lot. Right. But, mm-hmm. but that, um, that you could achieve those same effects if a person was integrated within a non-spiritual community. That is, in our culture, maybe the reason that mental that people who are non-religious or, I guess, less religious uh, have are associated with lower mental health is because, obviously, in a country that's 90 percent, you know, religious or 85 percent Christian or whatever, that you are, by definition, somewhat of an outsider and you don't have those benefits of there's a place I go every week where people say hi and do this with the mm-hmm. soup kitchen and the blah, blah, blah. Like, these studies actually don't show as much validity when you do them in places like Denmark, Sweden, right. Norway, where the church is not such a monolithic dominating. And Denmark's the happiest right. country in the world, and it's very non-religious. So weren't these – wasn't this data from the article we were reading, though? Wasn't this done on European uh, There Europeans? are several studies that we refer to here, but, yeah, there was uh, things – I think that the researchers were from – looks like the university was from the Paris School of Economics. Hmm. Uh, so some of this data might be religious. Um, and, and again, I, I think back to the, the other point that some of this could be valid in the sense that even in non-religious context, perhaps religious people in better uh, – they were referring to things more existentially like life satisfaction right. or that the religion buffers stress. And I think many people, even myself, don't have any problem with – yes, yeah, no, if somebody neither. thought that God loves them and that the creator of the universe has a personal relationship with you, that would buffer stress a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think uh, that that should be too challenging for skeptics. I, I just know from, like, personal reflecting on my life, I think of what it would be like to – would I choose my life now as a skeptic or choose my, my life now as a – you know, formerly as a religious believer? And I would just have to think I, – I might ha- – as a religious believer, if I had remained that way, I, maybe I would say that I enjoyed my life quite a bit, but I would have to think – I, I, I just don't think it could compare. It's that self-deception thing. Well, it, and I guess it's it's relative. I mean, you're judging against your life experience. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and one of my favorite quotes from Carl Sagan, who gets invoked here about once or twice an episode, and maybe <laughs> one of you can, can do your Carl, Carl Sagan impressions. No, that is a little God. <laughs> uh, I think I hit him with so much of that last yeah, week yeah, that I'm going to have to lay off for a while. But his, uh, his line is, better the hard truth I say than the comforting fantasy. And the, I think, important word in that phrase is the hard truth. The truth is not easy. You do find people that, people that say that they're skeptical, maybe not even atheists or agnostics, but just people who doubt more traditional religion are somewhat more anxious, mildly, more depressed than people who, who are fun, high fundamentalist religious. But that brings up, you know, we discuss this in my class all the time. It's more of a personal philosophical one, but what would you rather have? Mm-hmm. Would you rather have a world system that everything is spelled out for you, you know, here's the truth, and be happy, or uh, be out on your own and somewhat, you know, isolated yeah. or maybe even unhappy, but living out your own independent truth? Relates to a quote that I like, uh, John Stuart Mill. It is better to be a human being dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. Better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied. And if the pig or the fool is of a different opinion... It is because they only know their own side of the question. Ooh, oh, I like that. that Man, well. John Stewart's dad is smart. <laughs> Isn't the issue we were just talking about essentially what the whole Garden of Eden myth is? The, the Adam and Eve oh, absolutely. eat, eat oh, yeah, the tree right. of knowledge. It's, a, it's the, the apple that they eat or whatever the fruit is from the tree of knowledge. They had a perfect existence before. They were happy but constrained. And that the, and that the fall resulted from an independent action of choosing to have knowledge uh, and they were expelled into the east of Eden to pain <laughs> and suffering because they chose that as opposed to having a comfort. Isn't that what the whole myth is supposed yeah, to represent? Yeah. Well, I guess that makes kind of a interesting retort to the Christian apologist who would insist that people are motivated to become atheists because of hedonism, because they want to... Uh, uh, drink they, and be they, merry? Yeah, they choose the easier way out. They choose the life of uh, just following their own self-interest and looking for their own happiness. Yeah, I believe when I die, I'm going to rot in the ground, and all the friends and everybody I loved is going to rot too. How yeah. happy do you think that makes me? Yeah. Well, it's a lot happier than burning in eternal torments. True. Wait, what was the... There's, there's eternal torment? Ow, quit it. Ow, quit it forever. Ow, quit it. <laughs> That actually is is a nice little segue into some listener email. 
we, we got this email a while back. Uh, it comes from a listener who calls herself an appreciative listener. So that's what we'll call her. One question, she says, that I haven't heard addressed is the subject of grief and how to handle it when someone that you've worked with for a number of years passes away. The perfunctory card is passed around the office to be signed, and I usually offer up the standard condolences, but in a religious or faith-filled office environment, I'm at a loss, she says, when it comes to the topic of someone dying. The standard comments of God is with them or their fate is in the hands of God and other such sentiments, but in them I find little comfort. I usually withhold comment or answer with a weak yep. That feels cold and impersonal, even though I have great caring and compassion. A good coworker recently lost her father, and when she returned, I didn't know what to say outside the usual religious sentiments. I felt helpless to comfort her. What can a non-believer say to comfort a believer? You but, almost want to just leave it there because it was such a well-written email. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like a standalone, yes, let's think about this. Yeah, it, um, a, a few years ago, I, I told our appreciative listener, when I was new to the world of disbelief, I had a coworker who died suddenly, and I found myself experiencing many of the same things that, that she's going through here. So I turned to the online humanist community that I had joined and posed the question to them. I said, how does an atheist deal with death? What words of comfort can we offer? So on and so forth. Some of the advice they offered included saying things like, the world is a better place for having had, name of the deceased person, in it, or I'm sorry for your loss, which works really well for people you didn't know or people you didn't especially like, because I'm sorry for <laughs> your loss, because it is a loss to them, even if it's not particularly a loss to you. I do like that, that sentiment of the world is a better place for having mm -hmm. had this person in it. If someone died after a long illness, you could say that he or she is no longer suffering, and certainly that is true. You don't have to add, now they're in heaven and experiencing eternal bliss, but they are no longer suffering, and that is a good thing. One of the people that I wrote to had this to offer. I don't think it's my responsibility to provide words of comfort. Support, yes, but comfort, not really. Or to put it another way, my support is my form of comfort. Support means I am here to help, but it doesn't mean I will tell you things I don't believe to be true. It's kind of the, the humanist way, right? You don't pray for someone. You do something to help them, and that's, that's what they're advocating here. I really like that. There's something about being at a wake or a funeral where people are going up and they feel like they have to say something existential and profound. Right. Where this person has probably been getting that constantly and that's the last thing at least I would want to be hearing. I I love philosophy, but man, if I were to lose a loved one, I would get sick of the philosophy pretty quick in that situation. Just give them a hug. Exactly. Offer, offer to make them some food. Offer to right. uh, whatever it is that they meal. need. Exactly. Yeah. If they need help paying the bills, you know, help them out with that sort of thing. Help them find a job. The, or... the whole Carl Rogers humanist psychotherapy distinction between sympathy and empathy. That you know, sympathy. Yeah, you're exactly. To, you want to somehow feel that you have to feel their emotions, whereas mm -hmm. empathy is simply saying, you know, I know how you feel, or or maybe even there's no way that I can know how you feel, but I'm here to listen to you and you know mm -hmm. which, which brings me to one of my probably my favorite response that I got when I posed this question quote this event is a terrible tragedy and I won't pretend to understand the dev devastation and grief you must feel all I say is I am very sorry this has happened to you and your loved one I know that people will tell you that time heals all wounds I can tell you from personal experience that it does not the impact may fade but be prepared when you think you have dealt with it. Some crazy thing will happen that will bring it back as fresh as ever. You have suffered a hurt that will last lifelong, and I am deeply sorry this has happened to you. I don't know what I can do to help, but please know that if there's anything at all I can do, please do not hesitate to let me know. You don't have to say, I understand, or I've been there. That, that to me... That's never been a comfort for me when someone says, hey, I've been there. You know, you get your right. heart broken and someone says, well, you know, I've had my heart broken too. We all go through it. That that doesn't comfort. But to say, if you need anything, let me know. 
I will be there. I will help out. And I think that is the important thing to keep in mind. But um, so instead of saying, I'll pray for you, say, what can I do for you? If, of course, they respond with, keep me in your prayers, as many people would uh, might do, an appropriate response might be, I'll keep you in my thoughts, and again, let me know if there's anything I can do. If they're grieving, it's not the time for you to say, I'm not going to pray. Prayer is silly. Prayer is a waste. Okay? It, they're grieving. They're grieving the way they need to. It's not your time to make a stand and say, you know, well, your God isn't really there. Your grandpa's not in heaven, but, you know, oh, that gosh. makes you feel better. So, but that being said, it has to go both ways. If you're grieving and someone says to you, they're in a better place or God needed another angel or or one of those ridiculous things, it's absolutely your right should you choose to exercise it to say – Screw you, okay? They are not. My loved one is gone, and no empty sentiments or greeting cards are going to change that. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I agree. I totally agree with you. Other than one little thing is that that might play into the perception. Of course, nobody going through this situation is going to give a shit about debating strategy and, and, and right. what philosophical perception. But mm-hmm. I do think responding like that would add to the uh, to the perception that people doubt because they're angry or something. Whereas I like the, the comment you read. It really has a certain nobility about it uh, to cer- respond like, well, I, I appreciate that, you know, you would think, um, I appreciate that you're trying to comfort me. I prefer, um, I prefer confronting reality rather than finding consolations. Right, which would, be a, which would be a nicer way to say screw you. Yeah, no, I, a I, dignified I way of saying screw you. Yeah, absolutely. It wouldn't be right to end the podcast without sharing with you what I think is our most trippy stranger than fiction yet. Moses was high on drugs, Israeli researchers say. This comes to us from ABC News. Apparently, Moses and the Israelites were on drugs, says Benny Shannon, an Israeli professor of cognitive philosophy. Writing in the British journal Time and Mind, he claims Moses was probably on psychedelic drugs when he received the Ten Commandments from God. One tablet makes you larger, one tablet makes you small. (laughs) The assertions give a whole new meaning to Moses being High on Mount Sinai. That's from the article. ABC News, Simon McGregor Wood, the writer, you clever bastard. Oh, and the picture they have on the website where this is posted is great. It's awesome. It's it's, uh, Moses. um, It's Charlton Heston as Moses with his arms stretched out. And then behind him. Behold his mighty hand. Behind him is this trippy uh, psychedelic picture of – not Terrence McKenna. Um, Timothy Leary? Timothy Leary. Yeah, they have a picture of Timothy Leary looking all tripped out behind him. It's yes. awesome. According to Shannon, a professor at Hebrew University, two naturally existing plants in the Sinai Peninsula have the same psychoactive components as ones found in the Amazon jungle Fine. and are well known for their mind-altering capabilities. <laughs> Oh, man, this manna tastes – I've never had better manna ever than this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Oh. I got the munch. Oh, man. I got to pee a lot. The drugs are usually combined in a drink called ayahuasca. Yeah, I know. How, we, how about we call it holy juice? <laughs> in advanced forms of – Holy juice inebriation, he says, the seeing of light is accompanied by profound religious and spiritual feelings. Is this the stuff that William Hurt had in Altered States where he had like these <laughs> primal God experiences from tripping on Very the peyote likely. type uh, Indian stuff? Well, he brings up in the article, it's great. It's, it's almost um, because the guy who did the research admitted to doing these drugs himself. Oh, it, of course. But it's funny. It just takes on this, this attitude like, yeah, come on, guys. Lightning, trumpets, 
burning bushes. <laughs> Tablets. Hello. Yeah. yeah. Although I got to ask, how much of this stuff do you think you have to drink in order to see God's ass? Because <laughs> as you'll remember, that's an important that's part true. of the Moses story where true. he sees God's ass and then his face glows yeah, so yeah. brightly he has to wear a shroud for like two weeks or something like that. You know that? what that means? His eyes were dilated, man. Oh, that would explain <laughs> And you're it. in the desert? Of course you're going to have to wear a shroud for how many days? And you think anybody's going to, you know, somebody's going to think something up when they look at Moses and he's got shroom very, face and he's saucer-eyed. At the least, right. it would explain why the answers in the text don't mean anything. I am what I am. Yeah. <laughs> what is oh, that? wow, man. Wow, dude. <laughs> Holy Popeye is profound. Well, you know, I, I do I do think there is reason to be skeptical of this. I mean, not only because there's uh, there are good alternative theories to how these stories evolved uh, that seem to fit well with the evidence that don't require any sort of literal Moses on top of the mountains receiving commandments. Right. Uh, but other ones, too, is, um, look, there are verses that make it plausible that God or that Moses did drugs. Right. But God never really approved. So, like, Moses hit the rock. But I'm yeah, yeah. That's yeah. why he was forbidden Hit to enter the, the promised land. Yeah, so God doesn't approve of Moses hitting the rock. He's Rick James, bitch. And, um, you know, God, God and Moses were pals. That the pillar of smoke and Moses in the in the tent I'd all see, the time. I yeah. hadn't gone to the pillar of smoke. Smokey and Mo, that's what they called them. They were they were tight. Moses and all the elders and the pillar of smoke. You just know Wait Moses had dreads second. too. They were doing drugs all the freaking time. And he is the most high God. He he is the most high It's all so freaking clear, man. Yeah. Now that yeah. we've been talking And that about follows it. into the New Testament, right? Because Paul was stoned thrice. That's right. That's Stoning right. Stoning of Stephen. They were all yeah. stoned. Yeah. I, Isaac Hype. Yeah. So a lot of drug use in the Bible. Everybody must get stoned. Now it's coming around full circle and we, we're, we're understanding this. So I just don't believe somebody on a good good psychedelic trip is going to come up with the monotheistic god of Judaism. No. You know, it seems awfully harsh. And, and fairly rigid rules. Yeah. That does not sound like a, like a, a no. good trip, you know? No. I would think it would be more along the lines of, you know, like building golden ox and dancing around it and all that. That's right. You know, that, Fertility rituals. Yeah, I would think so. Hmm. Hmm. One to ponder. Until the next reasonable doubts. So don't forget about checking out our MySpace page and Facebook group to hear skeptics gone wild. Email us your questions, comments, dirty limericks, challenges, etc. to doubtcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Josh Dunnigan helped with recording. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission. Mm-hmm.